0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification.
1: that we are alive again, here on December 30th, 2018. Our last Calcedon Q&A, be the word for the year 2018. I'm Martin Sobretti. I'm the vice president of the Calcedon Foundation, and I'm broadcasting here from Georgetown, Texas, to take your questions and answer them best we can. I see ground control is uh, in the cockpit there, so we're ready to begin with some of the first questions that have uh, came in for uh, online and via uh, personal. Communications with ground control. Give <coughs> me a second. First question is rather really interesting. What are the ethical limitations for medical research when it comes to the use of human remains? Does it matter how and under what circumstances the remains were obtained? For, for example, via unwilling prisoners, organ donors, preborn humans. To determine this question, according to God's word, who has jurisdiction in regulating or approving such things? So, uh, of course, this looms large in the question of. Uh, fetal tissue nowadays. And so what I've done, uh, and of course it also goes way back to the time when the early uh, anatomists were digging up cadavers to try to advance medical science. Uh, And we have that, even today, questions about, um, I think it's a thing called Body Works by Gunther Higgins. He's the guy who takes human bodies and does plasticine work with them. And then builds elaborate models of them, like the Visible Man models that were so popular in the 60s and 70s, uh, where you could see all the organs and the musculature and things like that. Whether how ethical were those acquisitions? And uh, and it's interesting. The book about Gunther Higgins spends a lot of time on the ethics. You know, we don't have an ethics that is out ahead of the situation. Consequently, we're out to sea. So we have to start at fundamentals, and I think this is where uh, the next two links that I've asked Ground Control to put up become very important. These come from the Journal of Biblical Ethics and Medicine, which was spearheaded by Dr. Edward Payne, Edward M. Payne, I believe, and Dr. Payne. Uh, in this I think this very second issue of this journal, he uh, from 1987 was a great article by Andrew White, which is the PDF that I think is being posted here by Ground Control. Uh, it has to do with abortion and child sacrifice, and it, it takes that concept and moves forward and explains from the, both the law of God but also the applications in Ezekiel and Jeremiah how it applies and how, what the es- essence of it was, which was that there was some gain to be had by the living by, taking, uh, by sacrificing the child uh, and uh, taking advantage of its murder. It would either gain uh, power, health, all sorts of things to the people who were left behind. Thank you. There's a, there's number one. And the second one is a link to uh, a couple of issues later, where it talks about the terrible infancy of <clears throat> fetal uh, cell transplantation, <clears throat> and from that it uh, and it quotes from Andrew White's Dr. White's article uh, concerning child sacrifices and builds on it. And that's what we need to do. We we need to set the anchor points in the biblical rock and then apply the principle of general equity, which is to say you take the law and you expand it. You do what Paul did, for example, with Deuteronomy 25.4, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain, uh, which is an example of thou shalt not steal, the case law application of that. So too, with all these instances, we need to then take those fundamental principles that are laid out in Scripture, and notice how strong a condemnation arises under certain circumstances, and uh, then build upon those. So for those who want to dig deeper into this area, uh, the Journal of Biblical Ethics and Medicine, those back issues, which are all available online, uh, are a tremendous start and indicate several things to me. One, that this work was already done, all this legwork was done, and now it's all but forgotten, which is a shame because there it's available on the web, but we're not consulting it, and modern bioethicists certainly neglect anything the Bible has to say. And yet here's this tremendous, um, I think there's at least, at least eight years' worth, of, uh, if not more, of the journal uh, available online, and uh, its aston- I have it also in printed form up on my shelves. Uh, But the point is you can even do searches and stuff online and get some of these answers, and they're not just limited to the question that was asked by this particular uh, inquiry, but they deal with a whole range of things related to the uh, study of medicine Uh, and application of biblical ethics to the medical enterprise as it relates to questions like this, the use of the body, uh, and also the circumstances under which that body became, quote, unquote, available uh, for apparent use or non-use, as the case may be. So, all that to say, sometimes I say we need to get um, our legs under us and start some, do the legwork. Here it is, the legwork's been done, and we just tossed it away. <laughs> so, at this point, it's a case of recovery. Become familiar with all the reasoning that's been done before. You have a bunch of Christian doctors who are um, warm toward biblical law. Uh, developed on their own time and put all this elbow grease into the process of analyzing these questions, and they are still unknown and a mystery today, uh, that means that we're giving away points and we are retreating because we are unaware of previous victories or previous um, milestones that have been met in the process of reconstruction. So reconstruction should not have to be reinventing the wheel over and over again so we start from fresh. Normally people say, well, I guess no one's asked this question before, so I guess we have to start from scratch and develop an answer. Not true. The fact of the matter is these answers have been developed, and uh, you can then trace this through these two links forward through the entire Journal of biblical Ethics of Medicine and see how it works out. And by the way, people have then built on top of that afterward, uh, and I think one of the folks that have been strongest in this area is Jean-Marc Berthoud the so-called Swiss Rashtuni in Lausanne, Switzerland, who had the occasion of uh, visiting last year uh, in his home. And he's considered one of the top uh, Christian bioethicists uh, in the world. And how many of us know about him? In fact, that's one of the reasons that we devoted the very last non-print issue of Faith for Love of Life to Bertou's work. Uh, uh, it is because of not only his contributions in theology in general, but also the fact that his bioethical research and his application of biblical law to the biological medical professions is so on the point and so valuable to us. Hey, uh, J. Vincent Garza, good to have you here. And yes, please do pray for Chalcedon in the coming season. Uh, We want to continue the Lord's work in earnest and um, your prayers are part of that process which expedites God's word being sent out without apology and compromise. So uh, there are answers to these questions, and I would say uh, it would be best to actually dig in. So I'm kind of compelling people to do a little research. Uh, I'm actually giving you the links and say if you read this and then follow through, you will get the answers you need. But we don't want to continually reinvent wheels because then the habit is someone else has to reinvent the wheel. And by the way, the enemies of God don't reinvent any wheels. They are already very comfortable with the ground they already have uh, gained and they build on the ground they already gained. And that's why if we reinvented the wheel and now we starting from scratch over and over and over again, and they're building on the ground they gained, then culturally they'll have the hegemony, the dominance, because we are ignorant of our own history. By the way, this concept of history is going to come into play in one of the other questions. And the third question coming up. So uh, we'll talk about the importance of knowing where you came from because then you know where you ought to be going. And you don't want to uh, be unaware of what happened before. This kind of became a tragedy opening verses of Exodus, remember? There arose a Pharaoh who knew not, Joseph, and this spelled evil for uh, the Jewish people, the Hebraic people at that point because all that um, goodwill between the nations was a forgotten thing, and now it was time to use them as slave labor. So. Uh, it's important that we retain history. Dr. Rashtuni, uh, mentioned it when we published one of his articles, talked about a memory war. It was an article on remembrance, I believe. And he talked about a memory war, and he cited, I believe it was Jeremiah eleven nineteen to the effect that humanists, because they're anti-God, want to erase history. And so it does not do us well if we're doing the humanist job for them by forgetting our history uh, and the work that's already been done the spade work, difficult spade work in reconstructing these fields and getting a a biblical grasp around these things. Now, no one's gonna tell I'm not telling you that the Journal of Biblical Ethics, every single article in it, is hundred percent perfect, biblically accurate. That is not the case. The point is that these men made it their mission to do the best job they had with the tools they had and they were pioneers. The pioneer is the guy with the arrow in his back. So keep in mind that pioneering work is not perfect, but we wouldn't even be in that area if it weren't for the pioneer plowing through and tra- blazing the trail, showing how the biblical law, which has been long forgotten in our country, ought to be applied and deliver light. Remember, the entering in of thy word bringeth light. So the whole uh, enterprise of the medical profession and all its aspects as desperately needs the salt and the light instead of its um, lingering in the darkness. And propagating darkness as a policy matter, we can do better. So... All that to say, the answers are there, and this time rather than give it a, a detailed exposition. It's enough for us to know that, that what I laid out earlier, that oftentimes we simply are using things because they will benefit us. And this is the essence, by the way, of the uh, Moloch worship and child sacrifice that is condemned so roundly. In fact, it has a death penalty applied to it in Scripture um, because uh, you are actually willing to see something else be killed for your personal benefit, and if the, a murderous impulse is not worthy of a death that you execute on, that you act on, is not worthy of a death sentence. What is? Okay, so um, and that's the other point. Where's the jurisdiction? It w- should have been that the uh, doctors were forming a guild that would have self-regulated on ethical matters and then referred to the civil magistrate those who violated the civil the rules. Uh, but unfortunately, it worked out very differently when humanism then gripped. Uh, medical enterprise and said you're going to be subservient to humanism, manage the measure of all things, and not God. You're not dealing with uh, uh, creatures that are the image of God, you're dealing with molecules in motion, and therefore public policy determines what's right and wrong. And that deadly turn is what is destroying the medical enterprise today. And where the Hippocratic Oath, with all its flaws, (laughs) they still can't even keep that now. Oh well. That's what happens when we throw uh, the law of God under the bus, except it actually is still operative on your nation. Uh, when you violate God's law, then it kicks in. And uh, the timing on that, we don't know. We know, for example, that it took 490 years of violation of the land Sabbath before God executed judgment upon Israel for violating it that long by exiling them for 70 years uh, to Babylon until God's land had enjoyed all her sabbaths, all those 70 missed sabbath years of resting. So we never know what the time of visitation is going to be, except that God is long-suffering, and uh, consequently, he's giving us space to repent. Are we using that time wisely? This was the problem that's expressed about Jezebel in in the Revelation um, letters. I think Thyatira said, you tolerate uh, thy wife Jezebel. I gave her space to repent, but she wouldn't. So when God uh, gives you opportunity to repent, that is time that you need to improve to do the right thing. Modern medicine is not doing any such thing. And modern man, of course, is simply skating closer and closer to the judgment he richly deserves. And judgment, therefore, will have a twofold purpose. It will purge out the evil, and it will reestablish the good. But it will be God's doing, won't be a revolutionary act of human beings. So, let's go to the next question, which is interesting. When the Bible says, Consider it all joy when you face trials, etc., How is this different than the idea of mind over matter? So consider all joy when you face various temptations is in James 1, 2. And the point of that text we should also uh, make clear. Let's um, examine it. Uh, It's ends with a semicolon, which means it's really a a single sentence that keeps going, because then it continues, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Then it continues, If you let anyone lack wisdom, let him ask. So you see that there's a purpose. It's not a mindless, abstract, let's just be joyful because of temptations or trials, or the testing of our faith. It's rather unto a particular purpose, it's, uh, and that's important. It's couched in a certain phrase, and there's a similar parallel given in First uh, Peter 4:13. right here yeah, "But rejoice uh, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, which is in a time, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy." If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So there's purposes behind this. There's just not abstract saying, we're going to force a smile, we're going to be um, um, Pollyanna-ish over all these issues. In fact, the Bible is very fairly plain spoken about suffering and the difficulties of it. Uh, Psalm 88 is almost an ode to suffering and being uh, oppressed even by apparently God himself because God here in that psalm is testing us with his eyelids. It's one of the most interesting verses in Psalm 11, uh, verses 3 and 4. We, we always know the one, but we always forget the other that follows, the ones about the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But it follows on with you know, God uh, tests the sons of men with his eyelids. And I've said before in these lectures uh, and Q&As, Testing by the eyelids means God looks like he's not seeing you. He closes his eyelids, and it's a test of our character. What will we do if we think God's not listening? And therefore, it is to try us and test, uh, like you test the silver or the metal, to make sure that it is strong and pure. He purifies us, if you will. It's a purifying act, um, because, and what is being purged out is self-reliance. <laughs> Basically, trust in the arm of flesh is what's being purged out by this process. So everyone has their own weaknesses, and that God's going to work on them at that point. But the point I'm uh, making with Psalm 88 is that it uh, speaks to the man who is suffering. And so, in uh, this man fully embraces that suffering uh, insofar as it is temporal suffering, suffering in this world. Uh, not unlike what Lazarus goes through at the porch of the rich man. Uh, the dog's licking his wounds and his scabs, things like that. Uh, and But what happens on the flip side? So you have to see that the Scripture says that he doesn't count or uh, uh, doesn't reckon the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. So we have this very temporal life. Remember, our life is but a vapor. Boof, it's gone. But the temporal, the eternal side, the things that really matter are forever. And so he says the brief period of suffering is not to be compared to the eternal weight of glory to come. And so all these things are really a way of assessing or framing a, a matter like human suffering now, even when you're in the midst of it, Um, In fact, that actually is um, an interesting point. I think it's in Hebrews 10.34. Yeah. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience. There's that patience thing again. That after you have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. So here it is that uh, uh, the same concepts are being um, played out in terms of, uh, and you see there's all sorts of things are being brought to the table. It's not just an abstract uh, put on the happy face, don't put on the sourpuss when you're suffering. Uh, and, so, and Jesus kind of says something parallel to this when he says you should wash your face, it uh, might be elsewhere also, wash your face uh, and don't disfigured when you're fasting and looking at all, Um, graven and and shrunken in in your countenance, but um, don't hide the fact that you are doing so, that you're fasting, rather than making it ostentatious. But back to the notion of uh, literal suffering. If you're suffering, um, then the joy is something to be reckoned or counted. That means it's not that you're to be joyful in it, but that you're to count it a joy uh, so, it's a little bit different. It's actually a, an act of will, but not in the sense that the questioner says about mind over matter, saying I'm going to force myself to enjoy this torture or this horrible thing happening to my family. It's not to be joyed in because we should take no joy in evil being done to anybody, least of all ourselves. However, that the thing that it's going to be done is that this, everything that is designed to. Um, stall and derail the kingdom of God actually serves to make it move faster forward. And this is true not only at the large level, but at the individual level. Whatever uh, the devil thinks he's throwing at you uh, to stall you and to uh, harm your faith and your faithfulness uh, used properly can actually then accelerate you uh, in your mission and the purpose of your life. So it's all for a purpose. When you see the teleology behind it, the purpose behind it, then you realize it's not just mind over matter saying I'm going to compel myself to to smile and sing happy songs. You know, don't worry, be happy is going to be my motto here uh, when something terrible is happening to me. Uh, No, that's not what these countenances. These all have a purpose and a teleology and a context to these verses, and it's not a matter of mind over matter. Um, If it was that simple, then Jesus wouldn't have made the comment about, well, if... uh, spirit is willing but the flesh is weak Um, it's not so easy to overcome the matter right but it's more to this it's that all these things point out that even uh, whatever is attempting to slow down and put a break upon the kingdom of god actually will expedite its moving forward hey dan good to have you here all right so not mind over matter it's a whole different thing and the context in james 1 2 uh, makes it clear that this is a very different thing. By the way, I guess you can go all the way back to um, the Beatitudes. I think it's five twelve, Matthew 5.12, where well, we have a hint of this concept here. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For This has to do with it, when men who revile you, persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now this is basically to say you're in good company if you're suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, It's kind of an indicator you're doing the right thing. If you make the right enemies and the right hostilities are up, then you realize, okay, the, the darkness hates the light, so therefore I'm on the right track. It's a good indicator, a good index that you're on the right track at that point. All right. Third question: Is it wrong to lament the past in light of God's word that tells us all things work together for good to the elect of God? Is it wise to default to the position? Well, it is understandable we're only human. So, talking about the uh, lamenting of the past, there is a right and a wrong way to deal with the past, uh, because the scriptures are fundamentally future-oriented. However, we need to be aware of our history because history then tells us what God redeemed us from in many cases. And therefore what the new path is and so it's out of darkness into the light for many people unless you're sanctified in the womb like say John the Baptist or Jeremiah were but if you're not in that case then of course there'll be a point in time in your life when there's a major shift where the the rebirth occurs and the um, what follows from that becomes a change and now we can look back on these things that we might regret and there's a sense in which there's a difference between a regret or remorse or a grief that is unto death, that's not constructive. It rather wallows in itself. It basically ties itself up because it seeks self-atonement. He says, if I was just remorse and i was so regretful about it, this is a form of self-atonement. You know, Dr. Reshtoni's book, The Cure of Souls, deals a lot with this mistake that many people make, even Christians feel that they would just you know, get down on their hands and knees and cry it out uh, and, and wail before God. Then this counts for something with him. Uh, likelihood is, in many cases, not some. Perhaps where uh, it would be appropriate, but it's appropriate then to turn away. That's the hope of repentance, is to the changing of the mind and the reorienting toward God and to the future. The Christianity is a future-oriented faith, so it's like this: if you are driving a car and your and your eyes are pegged to the rearview mirror, you're going to drive off the road. So having a focus on the past can be a very unhealthy thing for your faith unless it is to say, this is what God redeemed me from and has set me in motion in a new direction. Uh, but it has his part to play. Like Dr. Rastroni says, all the bad things that you might have done and had happen to you put you where you are today, and today might be exactly where God wants you for for tomorrow and beyond. So uh, Paul even saw this in terms of himself. He's there murdering cr- Christians. He's persecuting the heck out of the church and uh, and, and wreaking havoc on God's people. And then God says, I'm going to show him what things he must suffer for my namesake. I'm going to make him my apostle to the Gentiles. So, too, uh, he realized that his mission required a forward orientation. Hence, he said, yes, I am the chief of sinners, but God has called me to do a job, and I'm going to do the job. And so if this kind of lament or a remorse is an unhealthy one, it is going to prevent you from doing, being future-oriented. And therefore, the victory, note that is the whole point, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even your faith, is lost in the shuffle because now we're attempting to do self-atonement through remorse. There's a difference between um, remorse and repentance. they are different concepts. Uh, Dr. Rushdini did a fascinating discussion of the um, rich man in his conversation with Abraham, what constituted his past and what he had to say about it, and the man basically had not a repentant bone in his body. Uh, in fact, he was indicting Abraham and God for every single thing as he makes his comments. He's, he's saying, you know, why don't you um, let Abraham put a drop of fi- water on his finger to touch it to my tongue? Such a teeny, teeny request. How could you be so stingy? You know, to not, I would have done that for you, right? And then the point says, you know, uh, I uh, didn't have enough knowledge if someone came back from the dead then my brothers could be warned. I am actually more interested in my brothers than you are, Abraham or God, because I just want to send Lazarus back to warn them, because they don't have the warning they need, and you're depriving them of the warning they need. But Abraham fires back, they had law and the prophets. They have Moses. They don't need if someone comes back from the dead. And he informs them if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe either if someone comes back from the dead. So, uh, What happens, I'm telling you this story uh, about the rich man to show that when you are in a remorse frame of mind, you are framing everything incorrectly. And therefore, you cannot build a life on an error, on a falsity, on a falsehood, on a bad foundation of sand and of um, indictment of the righteous Abraham and God, for that matter. So, uh, whether it's understandable or human, remember, we are to be uh, mindful who's the big player in the picture? What's going on right now in my life? Am I the big player or is God the big player? Who's going to overthrow whose approach? You know, It's kind of silly to think I am going, my way is going to be the way and God can take a hike. It doesn't work that way. God's way is the only way that will prevail uh, and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and if I am with the program, that's great. I can be part of that and I can be a part of the train of the glory that follows him which is one of the greatest things that a creature can do, is to um, be there to sing the praises of his Creator and Redeemer. But if I decide I'm going to pull the other direction, then, of course, I am unwillingly going to glorify him anyway. The wrath of man shall praise thee, and the residue of wrath thou shalt restrain, which is from Psalm 76, verse 10. Uh, nothing that we can do to try to demar the image of God is going to ultimately work. Because uh, God overthrows it and overturns it and bends it to his will anyway. So, uh, lament, lamentations. Remember, even that term refers to them lamenting a leader who uh, made some, a classic mistake, which was Josiah, doing a preemptive war against Egypt, and therefore they lost the most righteous king they ever had, and they were just two generations of kings away from exile. So in that sense, uh, you can see that they had this wonderful start in the kingdom of God, and then they spurned it all, and they spoiled it, and they defiled themselves, as pathetic and sad. So, uh, But then the point is, when you grasp that you've done something terrible, you need to make the restitution where appropriate, and you need to then focus on almost doing what's right. It's not just to stop stealing, but to earn money and support yourself and help others, right? Lay off the, the theft, of course, but then to become productive. It's a twofold thing. So it's not enough just to stop with the negative. It's also to start doing what's right. And the last question that came in on online, then we'll take the live ones, if there are any, this last Q&A of the year. Especially during the holiday season, non-Krishna antinomian family rebuked their believing family members for not burying the hatchet and offering the hand of uh, acceptance to others in the family regardless of their ungodly lifestyles. Any advice? So what is being said here is we're around, say, the Thanksgiving or the Christmas table and why are you so judgmental about their um, shacking up or their uh, homosexuality, or whatever the case may be. Uh, We don't know what the particular crimes are. uh, The sins could be crime and sin or one of either. But the point is, you're standing up for what is true and light, and they're saying, that at this season, should we not uh, set all this aside and bury the hatchet? Now, first off, there's no hatchet. Their dispute is with God first and foremost. And what are you doing when you um, uh, draw any attention at all? You are, refu- you are actually following a commandment. It's part of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. If you read Leviticus 19, there's a context to it, and the context is very important. Uh, starting with verse 16 all the way up to 18. Uh, Thou shalt not um, go up and down as a tailbearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. That can be stand idle also against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. In other words, you will warn him of the effects of his sin. You will not uh, be otherwise. His sin is upon you. This is laid out in Ezekiel. You know, if you don't warn them, then their blood is out on your head. So Ezekiel is uh, uh, applying and expanding this teaching of Leviticus 19, 17, it is considered to be hateful to your brother, to let him sit in his sin, knowing that God's judgment roosts over him, broods over him, and is a perpetual uh, sword hanging there, and it will eventually fall. And for you to be content to see him die like that is not a good thing. So uh, you will uh, shout in any wise means absolutely under no circumstances will you fail to warn him and rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him, not allow uh, the sin to persist, at least not correct it. Now, when it's to be done once. There's no nagging, as I always say. It's not a matter of hang, hang, bang, bang, bang. They need to know, but they need to know once, and that suffices to warn them uh, that God has spoken to their life at that point. Verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So this is all one continuous passage. So let's assume that they have been warned. And of course, at this point, uh, you are if you're in that family situation, uh, the warning has already stood. You're not going to withdraw it because it's still a present concern, uh, a clear and present danger to be walking askance from God and walking defiantly to him. Uh, you're in a bad way at that point. At that point, we have verses like the famous one that uh, John Edwards preached. Sinners in the hands of angry God is based on a passage in Deuteronomy, their foot shall slip in due season. right? Surely thou hast put their uh, set their feet in slippery places, Psalm 73. So these concepts come together and say, I, I want the best for you, and this is why I have warned you. Uh, And so now the question is, is, to what extent is there a problem in celebrating a a feast with family? Because you're saying, what's more important, family or God? Is it really a choice between the two? We know at one time in history it was. For the Levites, they had to choose between our brethren or what God requires. And they chose God over the brethren, uh, which God saw in a very positive light, even though it was very, very grim, for the, the brethren of the Levites, their fellow tribes members, who the Levites took the sword against for having um, maligned the word of God and the law of God so totally there at the foot of the mount. So there's a lot to be said in these regards. But there's no, the hatchet that exists is not between you and another family member. The hatchet is God's concern with them. Now, if you've already warned them, then you can certainly... Be at peace, because at that point I think you're closer to the frame of mind uh, Paul says. Uh, so much as it lies with you, be at peace with all men. Uh, you've already made the warning that's required in Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, uh, and that is sufficient if everyone's aware that you've made this warning. Uh, then your presence there is not an endorsement of their sin. For example, uh, we this verse is going to be coming up in some white papers I'm working on in 2 Kings 3 uh, verse 13 they bring, uh, this Jehoshaphat who's king of Judah, but there's also uh, the bad guy uh, sitting there, Ahab and uh, they bring Elisha out, who was uh, the son of Shaphat, who poured water on the hands of Elijah and Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him so the king of Israel, and they didn't even call him Ahab would give him his name. They just uh, called him king of Israel. And Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, this is his attitude, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hands of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee, but now bring me a minstrel. And came to pass when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So we see here that there's a co-belligerency, and Elijah is there for Jehoshaphat's sake, but not for the sake of the king of Israel. He's making a distinction. He said, I wouldn't, um, if it weren't for the fact that this family member is here, this, this king of Judah who's faithful, Largely. <laughs> uh, then I wouldn't even look towards you or se- unto you or even look at you. But, things being what they are, we have a co-belligerency here, then we can get along, and he went ahead and helped all three kings. Not came to nothing, again, because of sin on Israel's part, uh, people of God's part, as that chapter ends. And Rashtuni has a chapter in *Chariots of Prophetic Fire exactly about this passage, and uh, it's called Fear of Victory telling um, well I'm sorry it's not it's that's not the phrase for it, but it's um but it's in that chapter in, in prophetic fire, and the point that it makes that uh, men do things in front of an audience, but what we're supposed to do is worry about what God thinks, so it's, it's more complex than that all right, so I think that'll let us know that it's not an easy thing uh, uh, but you're if you're holding your peace it's because you've already made your concerns known. You're not there to nag. You're there to be a light for the truth. It doesn't mean continual attack uh, or, or criticism if, it's, if the rebuke has already been made. The main thing is that the rebuke has already been issued for these behaviors, and your presence there is to be explicitly said this is not an endorsement of anyone's behavior. But I am here uh, for the sake of the family, to and also I am praying for repentance. Were this required? Okay, thank you. Books of Prophetic Fire. Thank you, Ground Control. Very good. And let me look back and see if we have any questions. Didn't look so up. Oh, someone's present. Hello, Doug. And Roberto. Those links are there. I do want to encourage you to, to click on those links if you're on a computer and dig in. Greetings from North Dallas, huh? Excellent. Nancy's here. Appreciate that. Wishes. Yes, uh, that remember thing is very very good. Well, at the moment we do not have any. No questions so far. It's one of those quiet days, and of course we kind of expected that because it's the end of the year. Uh, of course, also means that the last day or two of that um, tax deductible uh, donations can be made to Christian ministries, of which there are some very good ones and we think we're in the same class. (laughs) Um, And so if you have not made a final end of year donation to the work of the foundation, feel free to do so. Um, We certainly uh, have multiple projects that are worthy of your support. Uh, And that's why we go ahead and propagate the message of the Word of God and the law of the King. Yes, we have a Book of the Month Club coming up the week after tomorrow. Uh, which is on Lawn Liberty. Chris Zimmerman and Andrea Schwartz will be leading that. If you have not signed up, please please go ahead and do so. And also, if you want to send questions in, in advance for these Q&As, you just mail to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. And then, boom, we'll go and uh, take those on. I'll, 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 I'll print them out. I'll take them usually in the order that they're sent and, and they're received, and we'll see if we can't uh, shed some biblical light on them throw some resources at them. And um, our mission here at Chalcedon is let, to let all things be done unto edification. This is what St. Paul said is the mission. If what we're doing is not edifying, it's just tearing people down, uh, then, of course, it um, we fall short of what God's calling is for our lives. So if you have a, a parachurch ministry in the first place, it needs to be edifying people. It needs to be edifying people in a ways that perhaps the church is not. Otherwise, the church should be doing the job. As I've always said, much to uh, surprise the surprise of people, my job is to make Chalcedon obsolete. But it's taken a while to get there because, again, the reasons that I mentioned earlier in the discussion, we have all this tremendous work that was already done and is forgotten, and I don't want it to blow it at the wind. I want us to reassert it and build on that foundation. You know how you have to build? You build foundations, and you put the walls up, and you put the braces, and then finally the ceiling stone. Well, you don't just keep building the foundation over and over, and this is what happened in Haggai. the book of Haggai, they had these foundations were laid, the timbers, and then they didn't build anything on top of them. They went to deal with their own houses. And guess what happened? The timber foundations, the, the timbers rotted. And so they had to pull them away and start all over again. They had to go back to the forest. And also at the same time that that was occurring, God was putting a hole in their purse so that they looked for a Lot when they harvested and came to Little. God was blowing on, them, if you will and uh, imposing a temporal judgment for their neglect of the things of God. So when we get a foundation built, like this journal had been done under Dr. Payne's work in the 80s and 90s, uh, we should then consider that a rock-solid start and and pull out all the foundations that are useful in it and build upon it. And it shouldn't just sit there as some kind of edifice that's pretty like an old statue with pigeons on it. It's important, and it needs to be brought back to life and understood and its principles, Um, Made uh, a living voice in his defense. Remember, this is what the complaint was about post-millennialism at one time. They said it's dead because it has no living voice in its defense. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? God raised up any voices for it. Well, there were a few. There was J. Marcellus Kick, there was um, Roderick Campbell, O.T. Ellis, and Bettner, and then finally Rush Dooney came alongside. But that was not many in the way of... uh, uh, post after World War II. They just weren't. And so it was regarded as a dead thing. And now, of course, it's very much alive. And uh, and it lives because I believe it's the word of God properly understood in its fullness. Okay, so we have a uh, a question that's come up. Oh, more than one. Well, that was good. You just ask for questions. Let me pin uh, Diane's and I'll take the next one, Kelly's. Would you explain the verse in Matthew seven six where we are told not to throw our pearls before swine? Does that refer to the gospel? Okay, Let me kill that if I can. There you go. This is indica- indicative of the fact that um, you're giving good things to people who intend to not use them properly. In fact, will use them against you. Uh, so the the valuable things that are put before them say, truths or value, um, it, it can even be uh, capital, resources, energy, but it's going to be used against you by these individuals. They will uh, devour them and turn and consume you to devour you as well. So, um, in other words, there's a point in time where you should not be wasting your energy, whether in the form of rebuke, uh, um, uh, assessment, debate, uh, where you say, okay, we're, we're, we're through at this point. Um, Rosh article, maybe Ground Control quoted up, on titanism. Titanism appeared in the Roots of Reconstruction and was reprinted in an informed faith. And it's a powerful analysis of the fact that you cannot just go after someone and try to evangelize them forever and fruitlessly. Rather, it comes up time when you say, okay, we've invested enough time. Uh, even in the parable of the, the tree that wasn't bearing, the, when the uh, groundskeeper says, well, let me um, dung it and water it, take care of it for three years and see what happens. But there's still a three-year limit. <laughs> there's a limit to how long you can go on something that's reasonable. And at that point, you say you must move on to more fruitful areas. You cannot just forever bang your head against the wall. And in the instance that's described in the um, Sermon on the Mount here, it's even worse than that. They will take the, the good thing that you're trying to do and pervert it and attack you with it. So it becomes self-destructive. And there's something that's not fit about pearl and swine being put together in the first place. That's why I think there's a very vivid picture that's used by Christ in terms of it. Now, obviously you want to get the personages right. You don't want to suddenly declare, well, I think you're a swine, and this is kind of going to be a pretty good conversation killer to start with. So there's an appropriate way to be, um, winsome is the phrase uses, is used, gracious in speech. Your speech can be uh, salted with grace. But it's uh, seasoned with salt, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, and gracious. Um, And we should be men of peace at all costs. But then we also must say there's a point in time when we don't continue to spread the word of God or some good thing related to it to someone who's going to abuse it and hurt us with it. And and that's, that's the main point that there's a limit to how far we can go. And men must recognize that we are not God. See, God has no such limit as being described here. God can, in fact, uh, throw a pearl before a swine and convert the swine into something else. Um, so it's not a problem for God, but it is a problem for us. So when we have someone who has this kind of an, an attitude that is reflecting such strong language by the Lord, uh, it's indicative of someone who is absolutely abusive and evil and wicked, um, and he is in desperate need of conversion from God, but that's going to be God's doing and not yours by continuing to nag them and, and, and throw the pearls. And yes, it can refer to the gospel to a certain point. Uh, that means that there's strategy and tactics implied when you are in a very severe persecutorial situation. If you know, people are being persecuted for saying even saying they're a Christian, then you're going to be have to be prudent. You know, a, wise, a prudent man, also rendered a wise man, concealeth the matter to the Proverbs. There's a time when you don't blast it out of your mouth. <laughs> There's a time when you might conceal it, and therefore you have to assess the situation tactically and determine, is this wise or not wise based on what I'm facing here? And so, it takes wisdom. If you don't lack the wisdom, then we go back to that verse we're looking at, James one five. it continues saying, if anyone lack wisdom let him ask of God, and he will richly give it to us. The problem is that we don't often pray for wisdom. We pray for a lot of other things but not the wisdom. Okay, Kelly Asks me pin the comment so I can pull it up. Is verbal abuse and antagonism to the Christian faith between an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse enough for grounds for divorce? How can someone who is concerned about the poor and antagonistic example of an unbelieving parent protect their children? How much is too much? Okay. Uh, So uh, the question then is if it is a reviling Judgment, a, a railing, reviling judgment against the the faith. Uh, I think there's something fundamental where that that the premise of having that one flesh, that one community, that that singular bind, it's not actually there at that point. There's a tearing apart already uh, manifest. One person is owned, lock, stuck, and barrel by God himself, and the other is owned by himself. I imagine it's the usually it's the male spouse because we picking it in terms of that. But uh, what Paul conceived of happening in a relatively peaceable era that he lived in, where there was a semblance of conservative approaches to ethics, not good at all, but certainly not as far along as modern humanism is in respect to this. Uh, He expected that there could be, under certain circumstances, if the husband was otherwise fulfilling his duties, that she would um, be... In a position to, p- to potentially be a witness for his conversion but that was not a, uh, what i would call a blank check saying under on all circumstances he must she must uh, stay here no matter how abusive he becomes so there when the community is absent when we have that absence then essentially uh, everything else is a formality outside that it's an empty form and structure of the And uh, that becomes a problem. See, that's why it's important and why so much energy is spent in Scripture concerning um, unequal yoking between a believer and an unbeliever because it sets in motion potentially the kind of problem that Achilles' question raises where now there can be an attack. Now, sometimes God can take someone out himself. I mean, Nabal uh, was not slain by David, though he planned to do exactly that. God took him out. For uh, his attack on godliness and the godly king that was his ru- actual legitimate ruler. So, but sometimes uh, the civil magistrate can be involved in these things, and this is actually more of a Christian matter because if there's the civil magistrate would be involved um, more for for a, a physical abuse, uh, verbal abuse of the spouse, but a, bu- but a verbal abuse of the spouse's faith or Christianity comes into a different dimension, and I think this is where the um, men of the church need to then um, deal with that directly. And I do not see that that uh, what will then become the case. This again, a complexity. I not I'm not actually counseling someone right now on this. I'm indicating the complexity that's involved. It might have to be that, for the sake of the children she might have to make one decision or another. She has her own prerogatives, which are important, but she also has potentially children that are to be protected from uh, an ungodly witness. <coughs> because now you have two heads in the household. The children are told, according to the fifth commandment, they are to honor both parents, but one parent is not honoring God. In fact, is maligning God and laughing at God and laughing at the faith of the other um, parent who, who is a Christian. Uh, this is a war in the family. This is the family at war with itself. Uh, and so, under that household, that household cannot stand. That's a house divided, cannot stand. Uh, and, and that's why so much emphasis is put on not having a, um, a mixed faith marriage, where one's a humanist and one's a Christian. Now, if God decides He's going to send His light into just uh, two people who are married unbelievers. they're they're unbelievers and they got married but once converted in the meantime obviously God has now injected a new dynamic into the marriage but he's done it it asymmetrically only one has been affected, one spouse the other spouse has to put up with it Uh, or in the sense that they're now confronted with something that they don't like this is not what they bought into they were totally sold out for humanism and all of a sudden their spouse turned into a Christian and they're not happy with it Uh, and And so their mission might be to undermine the faith and make sure it's not propagated to the children. So now if you realize that your children are continually being evangelized for falsehood, that decision is going to be a a difficult one for the sake of the children and your own spiritual safety. So those are tough questions. Uh, When you have individual cases, then we can actually then work through the details and see where does, where does the church stand, where does the husband stand, uh, what level of counseling has been achieved and tried, and is it effectual or is it simply that this man is Nabal uh, in the sense that Abigail's husband was uh, worthless in the sense that bringing no spiritual value to the family, in fact undercutting and undermining it so that there's war in the family, a house divided, cannot stand. And so if it cannot stand, uh, propping it up is not going to work if he is absolutely dead set and defiant, and he's shaking his fist at God and spitting in God's eye. That is going to be a problem for the children to participate in, and for the spouse, it'll drag on her too. Okay, let me look at the next question. Joe Smith. If the Israelites were able to do the law partly because it was in their heart and not far away that they'd need someone to bring it to them, was the distinction of the New Covenant writing of the law on the heart? Okay. So well, it, when he says the actual phrasing that's used in the book, the Deuteronomy, is that the law of God, His statutes, His wisdoms, His ordinances, His precepts, says they are not across the sea, but we have to go across the sea to fetch them. They're not down buried in the ground; we have to go down to fetch them. They're not in the skies, so we have to build a big ladder to get them. He said, but it's not even in thy mouth. Now that's very different. Didn't say that in their heart, but it's not in their mouth. The, the heart's involvement is in circumcision of the heart. Circumcised thy hearts is commanded in Deuteronomy, I think it's the 10th chapter, among other places. So there's a difference between a circumcised heart, meaning a heart that's tender toward God and is, uh, has no confidence in the flesh, which is the whole point we were talking about in the previous question. One spouse has confidence in God alone, and the other has confidence in his own flesh. So too here, Israel was told where they needed to have their hearts set upon uh, and they were to worship the Lord the God with all their heart, all their mind, all their strength, all their spirit. So the Word of God was nigh in their mouth, which meant that there was no excuse for ignorance. I don't know. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do this. Well, the Bible indicates that it's not as if the law of God is a distant thing, it's a very, very close thing. But being in your mouth is not the same thing as being written in the heart. And uh, therefore, the p- point of the New Covenant is that. The words of God, which were previously written on stone tablets, are now written by the pen of the Spirit in the heart. And what happens when the law of God is written on the heart is that it obtains spontaneous obedience. Out of the treasures of the heart proceed all the issues of life. And so when God, upon your conversion, writes the law of God on your heart, then your reference point is to the words. And so the Holy Spirit quickens the law, which is written in words, in your heart and that you obey it as a consequence it comes from internally as opposed to externally imposed upon you it comes from within so that's what the whole point is Uh, it's sometimes wrongly stated that all people have the law of god on their heart in the heart written in the heart and that's a uh, misreading of the romans 2 passage which really says they have the work of the law written on the heart it's the work that's written uh, of the law modifies work so it's the ergon, the work of the law that's written on the heart which is another word for conscience so there's an operational notion being made in the image of God that we're doing something wrong so the, um, that's why it says man's conscience either excuses or excuses them they know in the heart of hearts as they say, that uh, they're operating because they're made in God's image and therefore this echo, if you will but it's also possible to sear your conscience and therefore to suppress the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ethical truth and his law uh, and the gospel—the purpose of the gospel, of course, is to quicken it, uh, it. First off, to redeem us from the curse of the law, which is the fundamental essence of the gospel. And, you know, we are no longer um, slaves to sin uh, because God has released us from its grasp through the Holy Spirit and through the work and through the atonement of the cross. But uh, so that's the big difference. By the way, while we're talking about law and heart, let's talk about the Word of God a little bit. There's a phrase that's used in Psalm 119. Thy word have I hidden in my heart. And people have used this verse to justify, I think wrongly, memorization of scriptures. They say, See, this is one way we can hide our word in our hearts. We can memorize some scriptures. But the way that works is when you memorize the Bible, the pieces of it, you are hiding God's word in your mind, not in your heart. Because our heart it actually is obeyed. But in the mind, it simply is a, um, intellectual. It's available to be accessed, but it also can be suppressed um, by a bad conscience. And, and that's what often happens. So there's a distinction between um, treasuring God's word up in your mind versus in the heart. There's a big difference. So I don't think, and that's why I'm th- saying that most memory programs fail a like fundamental test. I think Paul establishes by implication in his letter to the Corinthians. Better um, five words that are understood than 10,000 that are not. So we should be more content to read a scripture and understand it and when you can understand it, then you can enter into the heart Um, but if it's simply words we have the form of the religion, but maybe the power isn't going to be present, so that's a concern so um, that's what I would say in response to that it's that when the new covenant was made manifest and entered the world, the Holy Spirit itself is quickening the law of God in our hearts so that we might spontaneously obey it That's why the most unnatural thing, in my view, is to teach antinomianism and tell people, forget the law, dump the law, don't obey anything in the law, don't want to be one of those Pharisees. And, uh, of course, that creates a problem. Right off the bat, the the people who teach that fall under the rule of Matthew 5.19. Whoever loosens even the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be least in the kingdom of heaven, but whosoever shall do and teach them shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. So your status in the kingdom of heaven is determined by your attitude toward even the least of God's commandments. So loosening the commandments of God seems to be something you would want to avoid doing at all cost. Um be sure of yourself and if you and it seems to me that if you're going to err, err on the side of caution. Don't be reckless about something that's that can affect you so profoundly. Okay. Oh let's see, um Mr. Garza's got a question, let me pin that one. With the same apply if the family member having a gathering of worship, prayer, fellowship while believing they are not in sin, same-sex marriage relationship, and gathering in union, thanksgiving with God, but doesn't want anyone to bring up the subject about that sin. Thanks. Well, that's interesting. So you can certainly have the option of saying, I will not participate um, in a gathering on, that's premised on this requirement, because at that point you can say, um, The sinful tail is wagging the righteous dog, and we don't want to be necessarily going there. So, I think those are those are troublesome things, and you and you have to at least be a spokesman for God in those situations at some level. Even if they say they don't want you to bring the subject up, you'll say, "I'm going to sit there and be praying privately against it, privately praying that God would God's truth would enter in and change what's going on here." And you let that person know, so, I'll, I'll be glad to be there and not speak, but I will be praying and uh, with all my strength that the truth would be known here where you're blocking it out. So then they can make their decision. Are they willing to see you? Because um, there's a point where people's conscience is piqued and uh, pricked at awareness of certain things, awareness and... Uh, so sometimes you can have a silent witness. Remember, God is content to use silent witnesses all the time. It surprises us, but there it is. There it is in um, the Law of God where Moses said, I, I summon heaven and earth to be witnesses against you. Elsewhere, this pile of rocks is a witness between you and me. What's well, a pile of rocks, so what's it going to do? But it's a witness, and you can look at the pile and say, I remember what happened at that pile of rocks. We swore something on that pile of rocks and it's still testifying. And I could pull the pile of rocks apart, but I know in my heart of hearts that that's not going to change forever the fact that that testimony was made there and a promise made or a, a covenant was struck, an agreement was made. We wish we would handle this with our um, weddings and marriages more so. I mean, We have all these witnesses to a wedding and a marriage, and the Christians divorce as often as anyone, either because they're Marrying the wrong, and they're marrying prematurely and precipitously. Possibly not following Paul's rules. There, uh, there's a reason why, of course, Jacob becomes a very interesting example, right? Because he worked 14 years to get the spouse he wanted, so he had to make sure she was worth 14 years' worth of labor to Uncle Laban, the scumbag. <laughs> Some thought, of it. any event. Okay, so uh, there's ways to. Be a silent witness and testimony to things, and you can certainly make advantage of that. Let's see, Kevin's with us. Is there any good books that you recommend on biblical counseling? Well, here's the deal is that all the books that have been written on that topic um, are now considered dated. Jay Adams was the big pioneer. Remember, what I said earlier on in this discussion, I said the pioneer is the guy with the arrow in his back? So Jay Adams almost single handedly put together the concept of Nathanic counseling. And so now it's very easy for us to attack it, because we know a bunch of things that, were some of its weaknesses, some of its overstatements, some of its simplifications have shown to be oversimplifications. And so what then happens, unfortunately, is that rather than taking everything of value that he developed, we kind of rot away and say, well, <clears throat> we want to stay far, far away from J. Adams. And we, we fling imprecations upon his work and have his library here. At the time, no one else was doing that kind of work. So one has to say, all right, uh, man has not changed since J. Adams wrote these things. So what were what, what the mistakes, and are we using the Scripture to analyze these things? Or are we using an external testimony, a humanistic uh, framework, to judge J. Adams? I think J. Adams' work should be judged by Scripture and by uh, wise counselors who are sold out on the use of Scripture for counseling they're the ones who would be in the best position to say, Jay got this right and got that wrong. Jay made a tremendous contribution here, and he did a tremendous damage over here. That'd be a fair way to do it. But if we want to then say, now we're going to use Skinnerian things, we're going to use this whole humanistic stuff that was developed over here based on Freudian principles, and now we're going to go attack Jay, I'm not going to uh, have a lot to say positively about that. So what happens is that there are those who want to say, well, we are nothetic, but nothetic has come a long way. Well, the question is, in what way has it meandered? Has it meandered closer to Scripture? Has it meandered farther away? Is it just kind of maintaining its distance, detached contact, as they call that? That's the question. So uh, that's the problem, is that the one guy who was the pioneer, we have not yet had a solid biblical uh, reassessment of his body of his work, his tremendous, opus work, and that's what he was. He was that was a big deal for him and what he would dealt with. Uh, and. I think we have not done right by that legacy. We don't do the right by the legacy if we simply adopt those old books exactly as they are because they are not perfect, and the imperfections in them could be harmful. but that doesn't mean that you throw all the books out. We say we should need to go through them and see what did he get right, what did he get wrong? What do we know now that he was not aware of at the time because the world was a very different place in the seventies when he started to in the sixteen seventies when he was developed this stuff. Now, we have all sorts of things that in our culture that were not even evident back then, and there's awareness of certain forms of trauma and its implications, even biologically, that were not known then. And he would have then said, oh, now that we know these things, we should then apply these better truths. Remember, the whole principle of the Puritans was, we would go with our understanding of Scripture as we have it, or as God might shine further light upon it. So now that we have some potentially further light to shine on J. Adams' approaches, uh, we can say, okay, here's where he got it right, here's where he got it wrong, and here's where we need to then uh, take the spirit of J. Adams' approach and correct this letter of it where it failed of the spirit because of ignorance of certain things, um, not being biblical enough. It's, it can't be faulted for being too biblical, or else that would not be a flaw, that would be a bonus. But uh, that would also have to take into account all the other things. Because mankind is a very complex creature, and when man pr- has serious problems and needs counseling, then... Uh, it's not necessarily true that there's a safety in a multitude of counselors if they're all giving advice that is uh, at odds with Scripture. It needs to be scriptural. There's another um, question by Gil and I. Are people in the Millennium souls or people still alive in the book of Revelation? Well, that depends on your interpretation of the 20th chapter of Revelation. Clefoth, um, Warfield, Milligan, Rashtuni, myself, Bettner finally, um, by '84, we took to the view that the 20, that the millennium is actually a state of being. It is a picture of the intermediate state where the the soul is disembodied prior to the consummation, when the soul is reattached and reunited to a body, new body. Uh, and so, that means that Revelation 20 is a parallel to Revelation 6, 9 through 11 and Revelation 6:12-12. It uh, talks about, and in Revelation 6 talks about, I saw the souls of them were beheaded for the testimony of Christ, and they were given white robes under the altar of God, and they were told to wait a little season. So, it um, look, looks like souls, because it's talking about souls there, can wear white linen. I don't know about any other color linen, but white linen apparently is very much legitimate to wear for your soul. And Apparently they're identifiable, they have voices, so you can talk. So, whatever the sukai the, the soul is, that is exactly what is uh, present in Revelation 6, and uh, in Revelation 12 will be the same notion. So the millennium is not a period of time in the future. It's a place over our heads where all those who have died in the Lord uh, from Adam forward all are. Uh, And uh, the millennium ends at the same time that the little season. See, that means that we live in the little season here. Little season is a time during which God's judgments are destroying and consuming the wicked. so, that fire from heaven that's depicted in revelation twenty seven through nine is the same flame that's depicted in Daniel seven. I saw the throne and the stream of fire coming down from heaven onto the earth. Uh, this is in a pictorial form of what Paul says in romans 17-18. The wrath of God is is being revealed from heaven up from up there uh uh against all unrighteousness of men, so the wrath of God falls like fire. Uh, fire is the standing picture for God's wrath and anger and judgment. Even in Second uh, Chronicles 34, 35th chapter, uh, the phrase in the English says, Great is the uh, rage of the Lord that's poured out upon us. But in the Hebrew, it says, Great is the glowing fire of the Lord that's poured out upon us. So it's simply a picture of fire. It's a picture of the uh, uh, wrath of God in action. And so it is in pictorial form in Daniel and in Revelation. It's in didactic, theological form when Paul describes it doctrinally in Romans 1. The wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And the purpose of it is to eventually purge out the world and purify it. To destroy all the wicked so there's none left. And that's the process that we're living in. So if you're sucking air now, as we say, you're living in the little season. And uh, if you die in the Lord, you enter from move from the little season into the, uh, the thousand years of peace, if you will, where Satan can't get to you. Remember, in the Old Testament, Satan had access to heaven. He was hassling um, Josiah, Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah three, you know, accusing him to God's face right there. Uh, he's in heaven at, at using Job, saying, you know, skin for skin in Job 1. But he's cast out of heaven and no longer has a part to play in heaven in the book of Revelation. So uh, it's a Satan free zone, and that's why one of the blessings of being, that um, was a concern, of course, for the faith, so it was saints. You know, if, if we die, are we still going to have to fight Satan? No, the answer is no. He's been cast down, and he knows he only has a little season to work on. He's very angry because he has but a little time, Revelation 12.12. 12. He only uh, can operate on the surface of the earth. So if you take this view of the passage, and it's consistent with the parallel passages in Revelation itself, it's the only, only view I think that is consistent with the parallel passages inside Revelation, for the little season, term the microchronon, both in Revelation 6 and 20, um, then this kind of ties those two passages together, because you still see disembodied souls. You still see the macrochronon, the little season that's mentioned, during which time the brethren run their race, or finish, complete their number. All this is uh, makes sense. And so Bettner and Rashtuni finally saw the, the value of that approach. Now, you won't see this in Rashtuni's commentary in Revelation, what he wrote in 1970, because he was adopting what's called the Augustinian approach, or interpretation of Revelation 20. But yeah, by nineteen ninety four he had a different ideas about that, and saw that the warfield position had a lot to say for itself and was more consistent in many, many respects. So the answer is uh, the millennium is not something future it's now, and the second you die, you'll enter it, and the millennium also will end because the at the end of history the there's a tremendous change where the last enemies to be destroyed, and like I say, and Warfield puts it so well. Destroyed two ways, uh, it loosens its hold on Christ's children, those who are in the millennium, the thousand-year reign overhead um, in the heavenlies, and the men then living cannot die; they're changed in the twinkling of an eye, and that's how death is destroyed. And so the Church triumphant and the militant join together to enter into the one, into the world, which is Revelation twenty eleven, which matches you know that's where the white throne is, and the world actually literally disappears. Earth, heaven and earth fled from the presence of him on the throne and no place was found for them that's the end of the world and it matches what's happening in Matthew 25-31 where Christ sits on the throne and all the nations are before him that's it end of the line And so at that point everyone's resurrected and has their bodies back so the millennium is over because it's a state for disembodied souls remember the phrasing used of the millennium is I saw the souls of them see that, of them So I didn't see them. I saw the souls of them. And uh, it is nothing but disembodied souls in uh, the millennium. But the millennium is not a period of time. It's a state of being. And so um, there's two time symbols, little season, microchronon, and the thousand years. And so why why use these two symbols? Same way that Paul says, I don't consider the current problems worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. So the current problems are brief, short, because our time on earth is, what, three score and ten? And if by reason of strength we live longer, those days are filled with weariness of the flesh. So short time, a period of life, of trouble, followed by an indefinitely long period of time, of peace. So he doesn't compare the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. So when you translate it into the time, I don't compare the a little season worthy to be compared to the thousand years of peace. And so it's really two different states of being, they follow one another for each individual human being, because, you know, you don't you start off living here where we are right now in the little season. And it's a brief season, a broken time is it's called a seven years divided in half, cut time. But it's the period of time during which Christ is conquering the world and the wicked are being effectively destroyed. This is the mission and the and the message that's given by John the Baptist in Matthew three, eleven and twelve. It says, the Messiah stands and he has his winnowing hand in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor. The threshing floor in Micah is the service of the world. He will thoroughly purge it. Now, he didn't say he's, uh, he's going to get the, th- the winnowing fan to remove all the chaff. He says he has it now. He has it now. He's going to actively use it, and he's in the process sort of, right now of winnowing and purging the threshing floor driving all the chaff away, and this is the whole point of Daniel 2 and 4, about the um, all the kingdoms of the world that are against Christ shall become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, that the wind blows away and no place shall be found for them. So everything that is built on the sand is living on borrowed time and has no future. But the kingdom of God, which is eternal uh, and on, built on the rock, it's everlasting kingdom and nothing can shake it, an unshakable kingdom will remain, and that's really the picture that's being given. So this process of purging the world, remember it says I will thoroughly purge it. It's, um, it's a, a compound word there, diakathorizo in the, in the Greek. thoroughly purge in the King James. Through, not thorough, but through. The dia, like the th- diameter, a line that goes through a circle. Thoroughly purge completely. It goes go through the entire world to purge it completely of all the wicked. And that's what the Messiah is doing right now. He's in the process of purging the world. Uh, and he sits like a refiner's fire, according to Malachi 3. And he sits and purges and refines the sons of Levi and purifies the world. So it's a long process. But what we get at the end is that there's no more chaff on the ground. It's all been driven away and no place was found for it. So that's the uh, interesting notion. Oh, are we done for the time? Looks like we went over time. Yes, we'll see you all next week. And uh, I will continue. This was uh, number 61. We'll do number 62 next week. God bless everyone. Thank you. I didn't realize we were running out of time, so it means that we weren't uh, short on questions. Blessings to all, and have a happy new year, all. And may God be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks until next time may the lord richly bless you in all that you do